sins have done can save my guilty soul not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole not what I feel or do can give me peace with God not all my prayers and sighs and
happens if a man is taken by sin? If one among you falls away, you who are strong in the Spirit of God, gently restore him to the faith. springs from the valleys 
They flow between mountains. The birds of the air dwell by the waters, lifting Good their morning, voices. Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome. If you're visiting with us today, we'd like to welcome you to Cornerstone Bible Church. We have a guest book on the uh, welcome counter and a visitor's packet that we'd like to offer to you. Um, the purpose of our gathering today is to exalt the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the creator and sustainer of all things and the redeemer of all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ who is Lord and Savior. We're going to be uh, singing his praises today. We're going to be hearing from him through his word and enjoying the fellowship of the saints. Uh, before we begin our time of worship, though, just a few announcements. Um, who all participated in the car rally? I'm curious, yeah? Okay, who won? I never got that. The Stevens. As in Reed and uh, Lindsay. We'll leave it to the <laughs> local city government, right? To win a car. Did anybody get any tickets or anything like that? That was a trick. Oh, good idea. Great strategy. Okay. Well, thank you for, to everyone who participated in uh, the planning and execution of the car rally. Sorry we, we weren't here. Uh, we'll look forward to the, to the next one. As a reminder... The Five Points of Calvinism class is resuming this afternoon at 4.30 next door. Um, the Tuesday night group is, is meeting this week. Luke, is that right? And then the Gen <coughs> excuse me, Genesis Bible study will meet this Wednesday at our house. The uh, young adult Friday night group is meeting this, this week, so it looks like everything's full steam ahead. And um, I was reminded this week, I won't tell you how, but uh, not all churches are meeting on the 4th of July. There's a, a church that I'm aware of that j is just saying no, no services on the 4th of July for whatever reason. But just so that we're, we're clear, we are meeting on the 4th of July. We, we, we don't take Sundays off unless we're forced to. And that, that's because it's the Lord's Day. And uh, we don't meet out of our preference or convenience. We meet because uh, actually God has commanded us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And one important uh, feature of doing that is by meeting together as the body of Christ. So yes, we're having church. Is that next Sunday? Mm -hmm. yes. Wow. Where is the time going? And then... Uh, be praying for some outreach opportunities that we're planning on. Um, we, we, we're, we're trying to get involved with the farmer's market locally. And also the Desert Empire Fair is going to be open, Lord willing, in October. We'd like to have a booth there. That's where that display over there uh, came from. That is the display that we use at the Desert Empire Fair. So hopefully... We can use that for the purpose for which it was intended this October. Um, so those are the announcements. And now for our call to worship from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on 
earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of corporate worship. We thank you that you call your people to be together, to assemble themselves together as the body of Christ on the Lord's day. And we thank you that that is our experience right now. And we pray, Lord, that uh, our gathering together today would not just be a bunch of people meeting together, but that we would know in our experience that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the house of God. We pray that the Spirit would be here in power, that uh, he would fill every heart and bless and empower the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray, Lord, that today would be a good day in the courts of heaven, that we would know that you are in our midst and that we are your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts as we sing your praises, as we pray, and as we hear your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a blessing to be here. I invite you all to stand with us as we sing praises to our God. And this first song is taken almost directly from Isaiah chapter 40 and starts out with a question. It says, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. Since we wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord. Do not think you are 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though, everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if your unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For by works of the law, no, man, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. All, all through the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. <clears throat> Please pray with me. Dear God, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you use all things for good, for the good of those who love you. And as adopted children, we can call out for your help and that you will answer us and save us through your perfect plan of redemption. We thank you for all the gifts that you've given us even when we take them for granted, we today thank you for our church where we can worship you and learn about you. We want to pray for our local church and the body of believers here. We ask you to help us, even though we are weak and sinful 
Help us to rely on you and to trust in your promises, these promises we've read today and the promises through your word that we can live by faith. We ask you to help us to love you more and to love our neighbors. Use us to glorify you in what we do. And we want to see your church grow and people saved. So help us to feel compassion for those that don't know you and to live more consistently with the grace that you've shown us. We ask you to give us opportunities to witness to others and give us wisdom to bring your glory in how we talk to others. Work in us so that we are witnesses through our actions and so that people can see that we are motivated by something different than the rest of the world, that we have a greater goal than serving ourselves and that we are known for our love for one another. We pray particularly for those in our congregation that are suffering, that are sick. Strengthen them and heal them and help them to know that you're with them. In particular, we pray for Mike Brown. Please, uh, we pray for his health, that you will encourage him. We pray for the Neals. Help them and be with them and their family. And with Shirley Walton, be with her and improve her health. And uh, for all those expecting children, please uh, encourage them and give them smooth deliveries. Be with them through this process. And we uh, thank you for the, those that went to the Riverside Youth Conference that they could go and uh, give them smooth traveling as they return today. We also pray for our church leaders Thank you for the, what they do for our church, and we particularly pray for, for Lynn. Um, be with him as he preaches your word, and give him wisdom and work in us uh, during this time so that we can grow in understanding and in our desire to respond with good works to serve you. Thank you for what our deacons do in our church. Bless them and uh, encourage them and give them wisdom. And we pray for our um, government leaders, our local government leaders, um, those leading our nation, give them wisdom. We ask that you will uh, help them to make wise decisions that lead to um, your glory. And in all these things, Lord, we pray that uh, you will use us to glorify you. We pray for um, that you will be glorified in, in everything that we're doing. In your name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand with us once again as we continue in this time of worship. This next song is very applicable to the passage that we have just read, um, knowing that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Nothing friends have done, nothing we can do that can save us, but it's really our, our faith in Christ and our trust in his work of salvation. So it's that faith now that, that, we, uh, that we ask God for, that we express our faith through loving God and
Father, we praise you as the God of creation, as the God of salvation. We praise your holy name that you saw it fit to send your son down to the earth to live a perfect, righteous life that we could not live and die a death that we deserve because we know that we are not righteous, not by anything that we can do. We have faith and our trust and our hope in you and the work of Christ. So now, Lord, we ask you open our ears to this message that you have prepared for us. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> Let's see. Well, we pick up our studies in the book of Romans in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23. And this is a very dense passage. In fact, one of the commentators that I use, Robert Mounts, he had this to say about Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. He said that uh, this passage is generally acknowledged to be the most theologically important segment of the entire New Testament. And you'll, I trust, see that as we make our way through it. Well, why is that? Why is Romans 3, verses 21 through 23 so important, or 31, excuse me? It's because in this passage, Paul explains the gospel. He gives the theological basis for the gospel. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Paul uh, explains what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Or there's uh, John 3.16, which is really familiar, that uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those passages and others are statements of the gospel, what the good news is. But in this passage that we're going to be looking at today, Paul explains why the good news is what it is. He's going to explain basically why it is that Jesus' death on the cross was necessary and what it is that Jesus' death on the cross accomplishes. Uh, and it's a reminder for us that while the gospel message itself is simple, so that even a child can understand it, it's not simplistic. The, the message of the gospel is very simple, but it's very, very profound. It's actually the most profound truth that mankind has ever known. It's the most profound thing you will ever hear or ever believe. And uh, Paul makes that very clear to us. And it's also a reminder, before we start, uh, 
that um, Christianity requires us to engage our minds. When you come to church, you don't come here to be entertained or to go to sleep or to be talked to in little sermonettes like your children. That's not what Christianity is about. That's not what church is all about. There is a lot of substantial truth and deep theology that you, the people of God, are supposed to know and embrace and believe and be able to tell to others. And so in the time that's before us today, I'm going to ask you, in the words of the apostles, to, to gird up the loins of your minds, uh, to, to, to muster your intellect this morning and think through the scriptures, think through the gospel itself, and don't grow tired as we ask you to think about weighty truths, because that's what God has called us to this morning. So, the passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, basically addresses the issue of how God justifies guilty sinners. How God justifies guilty sinners. And the way we're going to um, fill in the blanks, basically, is by asking a series of questions as we move through the text. And the first question is, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be saved? And that's covered in verses 21 through 24. How can anyone be saved? And the first word there in verse 21 is the word but. And that's a very important but because it marks a transition. And I remember last time as we uh, finished up uh, as we looked through verses 1 through 20, um, I, I remember telling everyone that we're setting the stage for the good news by completing the picture of the bad news. And indeed, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 is kind of dark because Paul finds it necessary to uh, impress on sinners like us that we are sinners in deep, desperate, profound need of the salvation that God brings through the gospel. And so the but there marks this transition from the bad news that we're all sinners, there's none righteous, no, not one, and all of the other language that Paul uses. It's a transition from that bad news to now the good news. When we talk about ourselves and what we deserve, it's bad, bad news. But when we talk about what God has done for sinners like us in Jesus Christ, that's the good news. And he says, but now, but now. So this transition is not just in terms of the news, but it's in terms of time as well. And Paul alludes to this time element in Galatians chapter 4 when he says, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And that is the truth. So in the days in which the apostle Paul lived, granted it was 
after the death and resurrection of Christ, but it was in the early days of the spread of the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel. It was right around the time of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But now, but now this good news is manifested, he's going to say. And then notice what this good news is all about. What is this transition based on? What is its theme? It's about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Four times in these verses, we're going to be told about the righteousness of God. It's here in verse 21, in verse 22, the righteousness of God again. Verse 25, God's righteousness. And in verse 26, his righteousness. Righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And as you'll recall, um, Paul begins the book of Romans in verse 17 of chapter 1 by talking about the righteousness of God. For in the gospel, he writes, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God. That is the theme of of the gospel. God requires righteousness from people as his image bearers, but we're all unrighteous because of our sin. And because of our sin and unrighteousness, the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God comes to those who never repent of their sins. They never turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we need and cannot supply because we're all under sin, we're all unrighteous, we all deserve the wrath of God, we're all helpless and hopeless before the justice of God. What we all need so desperately and cannot supply, God supplies by his grace, the very righteousness of God. This is the righteousness that God requires of us, but it doesn't come from us. It comes from God himself. And Paul is going to emphasize that this righteousness of God is apart from what we do. The reformers re, uh, referred to this righteousness of God as an alien righteousness it's alien to us, it's outside of us, has absolutely nothing to do with us, it turns out. It is the righteousness of God. It's all about God and it is from God. And, Paul says, this is not anything new. So he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been made known, Apart from the law, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with what we do, nothing to do with our obedience, our doings, our works. Then he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He wants to remind us that this is nothing new. This gospel that Paul is expounding in the book of Romans, in fact, that the whole New Testament expounds, is not entirely new. It was contained, in fact, in the Old Testament. There were types and shadows and 
promises that prepared the way for the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ and the full manifestation of the righteousness of God in Christ. And Paul has already given us some hints of how that's the case, that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I, I read uh, the first half of Romans 1 and verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. And in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, after our passage, Paul cites the example of Abraham from Genesis 15 and verse 6. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then later on in chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8, Paul cites the experience of David from Psalm 32 and verse Verses 1 and 2, blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So this righteousness of God, which is manifested apart from the law, has been witnessed to by the law and the prophets. And you'll notice that Paul goes on next to describe um, clearly how sinners like us receive the righteousness of God. So there's this alien righteousness apart from us, outside of us. And nevertheless, it comes into our experience, into our world through one specific particular means. And the Bible calls it faith. So in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is how sinners lay hold of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, through faith. That means putting your trust in him. It means relying on him. Or to be more dramatic, Casting yourself at the mercy of God's justice. That's what faith in the Bible is. It's a childlike trust in the provision of God for our justification because of what Jesus has done. And I'd like you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Here's a parallel text that makes it a little bit more uh, clear why faith is so important in laying hold of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul says, And be found in him, that is Christ, in the context, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law. That's what being saved in Christianity is all about. It is not about what we do. It's not about our obedience. It's not about our works. It's not even about our emotions. It's not about a righteousness of our own. But 
It's about that, in other words, righteousness, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the very righteousness of God that depends on faith. So this is why faith in Christianity is so important. Faith turns our attention away from ourselves and what we can do and what we deserve and it turns our attention to God. What God does, what God provides, the very righteousness of God. Faith is not um, the righteousness of God in and of itself. Faith is not like this, this uh, um, super work that somehow cancels out all of our sins and makes up for all of our lack of good works. It's not a super work in that sense. Faith is, the, is an empty hand that reaches and lays hold of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That's what faith is, and that's why it's important. And you'll notice back in um, Romans chapter 3, that this method of salvation, which is through faith, is offered to all sinners no matter who they are. So back in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Earlier we saw in chapter 2, verse 11, that God shows no partiality. There are no people groups, no divisions of people who are more righteous or less righteous in the sight of God. No one is more deserving of salvation or less deserving of salvation because of who they are in the flesh. And that extends to the basic division of people that is recognized in the Bible, that is Jew and Gentile. Everyone is an image bearer of God, but everyone is a fallen image bearer of God. And we are all under the wrath of God because of our sin and our unrighteousness. And that's why there's no distinction. We can't save ourselves. We can't contribute to our own salvation. We can't look to the flesh in any way, shape, or form. We have to look to another. We have to look to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's why there's no distinction. In fact, Paul makes that plain in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by the way, the Bible's message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, this is the only message that can unite sinners. There's so much division in our land, and I, you don't need me to tell you that. And there are different ideas of ways in which to unite people. But there is no political message. There's no sociological message. There are no tools that can unite people like the gospel of God's free grace. Because there's no distinction. And all of us, no matter who we are, black and white and of color, 
or not. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so in our identity, there is no hope. But there is hope in Jesus Christ where we receive the righteousness of God. This message unites justified sinners. Then we go on to verse 24. How is it that Jesus saves us? How does Jesus give us the very righteousness of God? Verse 25. This Jesus, this Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Put forward here means to put on display, to make public. He, he put forward, he sent him into this world on a mission of salvation. He was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And that word propitiation is a very important word. If you want to know the quality of your English translation of the Bible, look in Romans 3 and verse 25 and see how they translate the word propitiation. If it's propitiation, it's a good English translation. If it's not, look for an ESV or, or, or another literal translation. It's because that word, even though we don't use it that much, and it's super politically incorrect, way out of fashion. It's a very, very important word in understanding what Jesus did for us. Because the word to propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God. To satisfy the wrath of God. The, the wrath of God is a very important biblical theme and it's an important biblical theme in Romans. In chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so the question is, how can sinners like us be delivered from the wrath of God? And if it's just a matter of God changing his mood, then his wrath is just a temper tantrum. But that's not the God of the Bible, and that's not biblical wrath. Biblical wrath from, from God, not from man. But God's wrath in the Bible is a holy wrath. It's righteous. It's just. It's called for. And so if sinners like us would be delivered from the wrath of God, that wrath, which is holy and righteous and just, has to be satisfied in a way that doesn't contradict or undermine the righteousness and holiness and justice of God. So how can this be done? We know it can't be done by us. Paul's already made that abundantly clear. It can't be done by another person because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God and God alone 
must do it or there is no hope. So what did God do? He put forward his son, Christ Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood. His blood there does not mean that there's something biologically special about Jesus' blood. His blood is just like our blood, biologically, but it refers to his life. This is a, a, a granting of what the Old Testament teaches, that the life is in the blood. And so when we're told that God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, it means by his death. By his death, Jesus turned away the wrath of God by absorbing it, by satisfying it himself in his own death. That's the significance of the death of Christ. I just figured out I skipped over my, my outline. Um, let me just say, back in verse 24 that I skipped, sinners like us are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified is a, a legal term. It means to be declared righteous. And in the Christian message, sinners like us are declared righteous by the uh, judge of all the earth, God himself. And grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor towards us, which makes perfect sense in light of our sinfulness. And a gift, through the, um, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A gift in terms of what the Bible teaches is something that is freely given or granted and the giver is not constrained or bound to give, and the recipient has no right or claim to the gift. He's not earned it and does not deserve it. It's very different than the way human beings give gifts. We give gifts like Santa Claus does. Santa Claus is making a list and checking it twice, seeing who's naughty and who's nice. But God gives the gift of salvation to those who are not only naughty, but they're sinners, they're enemies of God. They're even people like Saul of Tarsus, who went on to write the book of Romans, who hated Jesus and hated the church and tried to destroy it. So, sorry for skipping over verse 24. Back in verse 25, God put forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. And then moving on to number uh, two in your outline. How can a just God justify sinners? This method of God putting forth, it emphasizes that God's the initiator and this is God's idea. And uh, this whole um, Paul's language in verse 25, it's reminiscent of the Old Testament in terms of the Day of Atonement and the Mercy Seat. You can read about that in your own time in Leviticus chapter 16. 
In fact, the word that is translated propitiation here, uh, it's the same Greek word, hilasterion, that uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but later on there was a, a man-made translation into Greek, the Septuagint, and those translators use the same word, hilasterion, to refer to the mercy seat. And so as a reminder, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, one day a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, later on the temple, and he would bring blood with him. And uh, this blood was the blood of sacrificed animals. And he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, the hilasterion. And by that means, he would make atonement for Israel. And so if you wrap all that up and you think about what Paul is saying here, Paul is inviting us to Christ in his death on the cross, to the redemption in his blood. Paul is inviting us to look at Christ in his death on the cross as the fulfillment of this Old Testament place of atonement and to the ritual of atonement itself. In the Old Testament, this took place behind the veil within the Holy of Holies. In the New Testament, it's on public display in Christ's death on the cross, which is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, bringing an end to all other sacrifices. And here's, here's the difference. In the Old Testament, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, the blood of goats and heifers any other animal blood could not take away sin. Couldn't deal with it once and for all. It was as if it was putting those sins on hold in a place of reserve for the time when Jesus would come and die on the cross and deal a decisive blow to sin and finally deal with sin in terms of the full justice and righteousness of God. That's what it means at the end of verse 25 when it says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So all of those rituals of the Old Testament were pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world they were a way in which sinners under the Old Covenant, believers under the, under the Old Covenant, were able to have faith in Christ. It was a shadowy Christ, but it was faith in Christ nonetheless. And to drive the point home, look with me in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Some scholars believe the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know because the writer of the book of Hebrews doesn't identify himself, may have been Paul, may have been somebody else. But the truth is the same because it's the same Holy Spirit who carried along the authors of all 66 books of the Bible. But in Hebrews chapter 9, and in uh, verses 1 through 5, there's this description of the holy place. And in verse 5, uh, he talks about the mercy seat 
the mercy seat there is that same Greek word, halosterion, that uh, Paul uses in Romans chapter 3 that's translated propitiation. But then notice what he goes on to say in verses 11 through 14. So in verses 1 through 10, there's this preparation. He's describing what was going on in the tabernacle, in the holy place of the Old Testament. And then he describes in verses 8 through 10 how that was all typical. It was pointing forward to the time of Christ, which he calls the time of Reformation. But then when Christ came, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He fulfilled the function of the Old Testament priests, and in particular, the high priest. He is our great high priest. And when he died on the cross, that was the place of atonement, the mercy seat. And as he did that, he secured an eternal redemption. Then, the passage goes on in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then skipping on to verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 9. It says that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. There's this reference to time again. But now, Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 21. He has appeared once at the end of the ages in the fullness of time. To do what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In chapter 10 and verse 4, the writer of Hebrews says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But in verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is what is going on in Romans chapter 3 and verses uh, 25 and following. This is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul says what he does in verse 26 of Romans chapter 3. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
the message of the cross leaves the justice of God completely intact. There's no compromise of the righteous requirements of the law of God. God doesn't um, sweep any of our sins under the rug. There's no manipulation. There's no negotiation. There's no trading on an equal level, on a human level. No, the righteousness of God, the justice of God are completely upheld in the cross work of Christ because Christ is God himself. He's God in human flesh. And when he died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in its fullness. Jesus drank the wrath of God to its dregs. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 when it says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sins were laid on Jesus. Our sins were punished to the fullest in Jesus so that we could be justified by faith. And thereby God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is amazing. That's amazing. That's truly good news. Good news is not some false gospel that never deals with human sin and only talks about the love of God. That's not good news. Good news is the truth of what God has done to take care of our sins, to take our sins out of the way. Because Jesus became sin for us. That's amazing good news. That leads us to the next question, number three. Is there any room for our boasting? Is there any room for our boasting? Notice verse 27. Then, Paul says, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Really straightforward. There's no room for boasting in the kingdom of God. The gospel does not save sinners only to have those saved sinners beat on their chest and say, aha, there's something good in me. There's something in me that attracted God's attention because I'm saved and you're not. Paul says, By the nature of the theology of the gospel itself, all boasting is excluded. There's no room for it. He goes on to say, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. This is a play on words when Paul says, Um, but by the law of faith. It's not that faith is a type of law, but in Paul's thinking, 
Uh, law is the opposite of faith, and faith is the opposite of law when it comes to our justification. When it comes to our sanctification, Paul is going to explain in Galatians that faith works. But when it comes to our justification, which has to do with our legal standing before God, faith does not work. Faith is passive. Faith simply receives the free gift of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's the opposite of law. Faith is an empty hand that receives from God what we are unable to accomplish for ourselves. That's why boasting is excluded. How can a beggar boast? And this is why Paul says things like he does in Galatians 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Do you think that you have room to boast? God forbid. Or Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as, uh, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Boasting is about glorifying ourselves, and the gospel is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. So boasting is completely contradictory to the grace of the gospel. And those of us, brothers and sisters, who love the grace of the gospel, we love the, the, what history now calls the doctrines of grace. We should be the ones who are the most free of boasting. There should be no hint of pride in us, not a trace of arrogance in us, because we, of all people, at least we say, that we understand and embrace the, the uh, sheer saving grace of God. And boasting is excluded. God forbid. The fourth question. Are there different methods of salvation for different types of people? In verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Um, basically, what that means is God justifies Jews, the circumcision, on the basis of faith and the uncircumcision uh, Gentiles through that faith. And he says in verse 20, as we've already seen, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so in verse 29, he says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? And the idea there is that if there's no difference in people, and we've established that, right? Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, we're all without excuse. We're all condemned and guilty by the law of God. So there's no distinction among people. 
So therefore, if there's different methods of salvation, it must mean that there's different gods because human nature is the same. And Paul just dismisses that idea out of hand. He, he simply says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. That's just a restatement of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so because of that, because there's no basic difference in human nature, we're all sinners, and because there's, there's one God, then it stands to reason that since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There's one method of salvation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. And that's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 when he says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then, fifthly and finally, does justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, overthrow the law? Does justification by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, overthrow the law? And that is uh, a restatement of verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? That's a logical question. If, if you're tracking what Paul has been saying from Romans chapter 1 until now, this should come to your mind. If it's true that, through the, that uh, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin, if it's true that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, then it follows. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Because it might sound as if we're saying, well, the law then is useless. Forget about the law. But Paul answers his own objection. He says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's a beautiful statement. Think about what we've already said. The righteousness of God is completely fulfilled and upheld in Christ's cross work. And so the law of God in uh, Christ's death on the cross and how we receive that through faith, the law of God is completely upheld in every single way because for one thing, Jesus upheld the law in his life. And we're going to see in Romans chapter 5 that we actually get credit for the active righteousness of Jesus in his life. But then Jesus also, um, as he hung on the cross, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by his death on the cross. And he says that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. So if you think about all that the law says <clears throat> and all that it requires, 
Jesus has fulfilled the whole thing in our behalf so that when we put our trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's reckoned to us. It's credited to us. And on the other hand, our sins are fully punished in Jesus. Well, that's what the law requires. So that's why the Christian gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, it does not overthrow the law. On the contrary, it upholds the law. The flip side is true too, isn't it? That means that if we involve man in our justification, in other words, in our legal standing before God, if somehow we are involved in that, then that takes away from the law of God because it lowers the standard. Because no matter what we do, it's always stained by sin. We're like King Midas in reverse. Whatever King Midas touched turned to gold. Whatever we touch is polluted by sin. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So to uphold the law, you have to get us out of the picture. And that's what the Christian gospel does. It's not about what we do or can do or will ever do. But we are accepted in the presence of God, declared righteous by the judge of all of the earth, only on the basis of what Jesus Christ the righteous has done in our place. And that makes Christianity utterly unique from every other philosophy, system of thought, and religion the world has ever known. Whenever man invents a religion or a system, it always involves sinful human beings doing something. But Christianity and Christianity alone says you can do nothing. Christ has done it all. And even in your coming to Christ behind the scenes, that's the grace of God at work in you, drawing you to him. It's all about the grace of God on full display in Jesus Christ. So, as a conclusion, go on to the next slide, Andy. What do we see in this whole passage but the five solas of the Protestant Reformation? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. When, when we stick to God's Word alone, then we will understand the gospel that saves, not man-made gospels. And when we do that, then we find out that salvation is by grace alone. It has to be, because we cannot deserve it. We don't deserve the least part of it. It has to be through faith alone because we're helpless and powerless and sinful and condemned. And it has to be solus Christus in Christ alone because no one else can give us the very righteousness of God. Only Jesus Christ himself. And it's soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. There's no boasting. There's no bragging. There's no glorying in the flesh. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
That's what it's all about. And this is not just a message of protest. This is what the Protestant, Protestant Reformation is all about. This is the Christian gospel. This is the gospel that is alive and well today. This is the gospel by which I have been saved and you have been saved if you're a believer. And this is the gospel that we call you to believe in if you're an unbeliever. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ as you are. A sinner, unrighteous, condemned, guilty, without excuse and cast yourself on the mercy of God's court and receive through the empty hand of faith the very righteousness of God which he offers in Jesus Christ, his son. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing message. What an amazing gospel. What amazing grace. Would you please help us to live in a way that is consistent with the grace of the gospel? Would you help us, Lord, to share this beautiful message with others? And would you save sinners even in our midst today? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. invite you to stand once again as we close out our time of worship together. <coughs> Singing about how deep the Father's love is for us and how if we are to boast, we're to boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection.
for our benediction today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God bless you.